When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 25th, 2014. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the predictive power or lack thereof of the NFL preseason. Preseason football, what is it good for? Then we'll talk about wins above replacement, the catch-all statistical measure that's supposedly the best way to measure a baseball player's overall ability, and which says that maybe the Royals' Alex Gordon is the best player in the game. War, what is it good for? What is it good for? And finally... ESPN.com's Kevin Pelton will be here to talk about the Cavs acquisition of Kevin Love and how we can tell just how good the ex-Timberwolf really is. Love. What is that good for? Actually, not finally, because we'll have a bonus segment for Slate Plus members. We'll be joined by The Washington Post's Sally Jenkins, and we'll talk about whether we will all forget Monet Davis's name now that the Little League World Series is over. Kids, they're not good for anything. Uh, joining me in Washington, D.C., it's Stefan Fatsis author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. He's a good man. He's good for everything. How are you, Stefan? Hi, Josh. I'm well. And with Cindy York, is that good for nothing? Mike Pesca, what has he ever done? What has he done for us lately? He's hosted The Gist with Mike Pesca. Actually, what he does every day is host The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. The theme of today's podcast is all's fair as we speak on love and war. And war. That we will. Um, we have a live show to announce. Uh, we have announced it before, but we can announce it multiple times. October 8th at Galapagos Art Space 
in Brooklyn. It's part of New York Super Week, which is an extension of Comic-Con, which is in itself an extension of another Comic-Con. Perhaps there will be a trailer for a new Marvel movie. Maybe Ant-Man will be at our show. He might be joining us. I, I will promise that today. Ant-Man will be there. Uh, Slate.com slash Hangout We just Super won't be Week. able to see, yes. Yeah, you won't be able to see him. He'll be there. He'll be... <laughs> lifting uh, five million times his body weight. He'll be holding up one uh, leg of my chair A little on the piece stage. of cheese that fell to the floor from someone's table. Do ants eat cheese? They should. <laughs> Do ants know what cheese is? All superheroes that have to norm for weight are like countries that have to norm for population. And imagine it goes on twice. Well, you know, your, ant, your foot in that ant hole, which killed 30 ants, normed to the population of Denmark, would have been able to lift for kroner. I don't know how that would work. So animals don't need to know what foods are to eat them. That's absurd. That is absurd. It's $20 ticket, but it's 30% off for Slate Plus members, October 8th. That's $6 off. Let me do the math there. Yeah, that's right. Um, Slate.com slash hang up super week. We're very statistically savvy, as you'll see in uh, at least two of our uh, four topics today. All the cheese crumbs you can eat also. Mm. Delicious crumbs. So the NFL season is starting very soon. Um, It's a very popular sport. Perhaps you're excited. You got your fantasy football draft coming up. Very excited. Woo, woo, hoo, hoo. But also, one week of preseason football still remaining. Boo. I just, I'm embodying. Love, war, boo, hoo. Our listeners here. I'm expressing their emotions for them. The big stories out of the league this week. One more week of preseason football. This is kind of what fodder we have. Rams quarterback Sam Bradford out for the year again. Another torn ACL. Broncos receiver Wes Wilker, we probably should not make light of this with the sound effect, uh, suffered his third concussion since November. Former Washington quarterback Joe Theismann thinks current Washington backup Kurt Cousins has outplayed current Washington starter Robert Griffin III. And Johnny Football is now Johnny Clipboard and also flipped the bird and was sacked by Michael Sam. So add that all up. And you might think that preseason NFL games are just a mechanism by which players get injured and the league and its beat writers turn up dumb fake controversies. And you, hypothetical listener, have completely and correctly 100% figured out what preseason football is. You'd be very, very right. But I'm going to go out on a limb, Stefan, and say that preseason football is not 100% useless for reasons that I'll get into after I let you speak. Which reasons do you want to get into? I mean, the reasons it's not useless are purely the internal ones for teams. They are a mechanism for determining whether players, usually players on the in the bottom, you know, quarter, fifth, sixth of the roster will make it maybe even fewer than that, maybe like six guys out of the 53 um, will make the team. They are not really a way for players to play themselves into shape, certainly, or play themselves into season form. I mean, throwing the ball is what they do, and catching it and blocking is what they've been doing for the whole summer against each other, not against other teams. Coaches don't really care whether anyone wins or loses, and we're going to get into the predictive value of preseason records. But you know, having been on a NFL sidelines in a preseason game, it's mostly – not mostly. It's entirely about – executing plays. This is part of the, you know, the military industrial approach toward football that every NFL team uses. And this it is it is a way for teams to at full speed implement and carry out the plays that they're like practicing seven eighths over speed. and over. Seven eight speed. Yeah. 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 Like seven they're good at ca- most guys get drafted because they could so precisely calculate their speed. What I like to do is just hop on one leg and call it half speed. <laughs> Um, so, Mike, what do you See, think? I would watch that. Wouldn't you watch an NFL preseason game with everyone hopping on one leg? Yeah, that, that is how you get hurt, though. <laughs> Don't go half speed. That's how you get hurt. 
What do I think of the preseason? There are so many sports that I guess the sports that we do follow so very much. We care about the preseason because we're so invested in those sports. But think about the sports that are really quite enjoyable that unless maybe you're a fanatic, you know, someone who's a fanatic, you kind of sit down. Let's take the U.S. Open, right? Josh, you're a big tennis fan. I'm a casual tennis fan. I think Stefan's maybe somewhere in between us. And so casual, casual. Okay, so we're both casual. So, you know, I like to know this much about the tennis going in. Nadal's not in it. Like to know that. Mm-hmm. Djokovic not doing that well. Like, I don't need really more sentences than that. Djokovic not been doing that well. Could be a chance for Federer. Like, you give me a sentence about each guy. I've oriented myself. I'm totally ready to watch the U.S. Open. Same with the Olympics, right? We'll get maybe a backstory. It's like, oh, yeah, and in qualifying she did first. Or, you know, ice skating. We haven't heard of these girls. And then they ice skate in the prelims. And so we have some investment. But do we really need that much? Do we really need all the day-in, day-out drama? It's actually not helpful. It actually doesn't at all add to uh, the story that's being told. You know, sports are a story. It's just, you know, indulgent. And the, uh, who was it? It was uh, one of these kind of um, mainstream self-helpy guys. So who was on Oprah or someone. He used to say, yeah, I think Chopra used to advise going on a news fast. And I never really liked that because I think news is important. But when it comes to preseason football. I prefer a news cleanse. Yes, I do. That's right. I am going to advise my clients to get a news cleanse for almost all of preseason football. A sports cleanse. Yeah, I think sports a sports cleanse. cleanse is healthy. Maybe that yeah. should be a separate segment. That should be the new name of the show, the sports cleanse. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the sports cleanse. Sports will just come like shooting out of, of, of you, all orifices. And that's that's disgusting. disgusting. You, 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 discuss, that? you discuss sports wash on the gist a few weeks ago. You get your sports wash, your sports cleanse. I think there's a theme here. Yeah. Okay, so I made a list. Con, incredibly boring. That's a yeah. big con. That's con. why I put a number one. <laughs> and also kind of a 1A. It is sold, the uh, preseason games, at full price to season ticket holders. Yeah, so con, soak your, your, your season ticket holders. Con, especially if you're con, the owner of the Jaguars. Double con. Um, so there is a fraud being perpetrated here. Fake football-like substance resembles football, not really football. Is revenue still not shared with the players from preseason? That used to be the case. That I do not know. There are also too many games. You were saying before we turned on the recorder that there used to be six preseason games, which I didn't know. That's a lot. That's for way too many. Now there are four. 1970 to 1977, there were six games. Now there are four. We got to get it down to like two. Wow, six games when there were 14 games in the regular season. <laughs> no, one, no one thought that was weird. Okay. That was a little weird, which means that there are more opportunities. There are too many opportunities for guys to get hurt. You can't have four preseason games. We want more games. opportunities to get hurt in the regular season. We do. I mean, if you're getting hurt, you might as well be a game that counts. I think that's actually true. I believe what I just said. Paul George, go. <laughs> and you could also argue, this is something that, I, that just occurred to me, that it, it's a substitute for the league, which has a lot of money, having to bankroll and support a legitimate developmental league. This gives them the chance to have these like 90-man rosters or whatever they are to watch these lower-tier guys perform, 80. cut them loose, and just not really have to invest in them. And you can just kind of like you know string these you know, fourth quarterback or whatever along and not actually have to, you know, have them on any roster or a development team or whatever. Here are the pros, though. Number one, players do need time to prepare for the regular season. There there are exhibitions in every sport. The problem is that the NFL is so popular that the games get elevated to a cultural position that they do not deserve. And so you don't mm-hmm. see spring training baseball games on primetime network TV, but that's not the NFL's po- fault that players it's so do, popular. Players do talk about feeling the need to be hit and to hit again after not having done it for a few months. Quarterbacks 
Jake Plummer told me, I need to be hit. I want to f- feel that again in order to get ready for the regular season. So, yes. There you go. Thank Jake you. Plummer needs to be hit. Number two. What's Jake Plummer's safe word? <laughs> Van Pelt. Um, right. Very good. It is a good opportunity to see young players if you are a fan of the team. You got these undrafted guys, new draft picks. It is there is something in it for fans if you get you want to see the the you know uh, David Clowney, you want to see Johnny Menzel, whatever. You're you're grinning, but it's actually true. You want to see the new players, um, and they get to play, which they might not get to do right. during the regular season. And I said the thing about injuries before, but football is just an injury delivery system. No matter how many exhibition games there are, the guys are going to get hurt. So it seems a little bit silly to blame preseason football for these injuries. Oh, I don't know. We're up to 62 concussions already from training camp and the regular season, true? according well, to uh, the Twitter feed, NFL concussions. And, and you, would got, you would think I may have missed most of those night. wouldn't even be reported as in training camp. Correct. keep them quiet. Yeah. Okay, finally, well, my last uh, item was thoroughly rejected, perhaps correctly. I think there is some predictive value to preseason, and Stefan, you can tell us the stats in a second. But also, there are storylines that come out of preseason that aren't stupid, like um, the fact that— 64 concussions, sorry. Like the fact that um, defensive holding— and illegal contact are being called to this insane degree. There have been 756 penalties so far compared to 526 through the first two weeks of preseason games. And those are basically, in large measure, these illegal contact penalties, which it seems like um, the passing game is going to be hugely affected. It seems like a reaction to the Seahawks defense where they're really pressing on receivers and the NFL is cracking down on that this year. That is, Mike... Something that is the equivalent of like Djokovic is not playing well. You want to know that going into the season. Or it's a way to test out a new rule and give the officials a chance to see what the effect is. Well, maybe they're the just practicing the throwing the flags because they need. They do. It's just like right. Jake Plummer needing to get hit. Get hit. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, a lot of timing to reach into your pocket and grab the flag. Yeah. I think that, of course, it has value from uh, getting ready for football and it's of interest. But the phrase you use, the, you know, it's been elevated to a place in the culture that it doesn't deserve, of course. But of course, that's driven by the fact that people want to see it. And how could you ever criticize, well, we're going to put on a product that not only in and of itself will get really good ratings and bring us revenue, but will prime the pump and get everyone excited for, you know, the most remunerative property on television, if not America. I do think that there's almost nothing about the preseason that can't be uh, explained to me in a GIF or GIF-laden rundown, like the one I'm looking right now on CBS Sports. I mean, you have seven good plays. You could watch them on a loop. Robert Quinn gets to the quarterback really quick. All right, he is fast. Oh, look at this. It's uh, Julio Jones outrunning the defense. Some pretty poor tackling on the part of the Titans. Nice downfield blocking, all I need to know. And then you have this sentence, which I say is questionable, but it comports with the, with the uh, mores of um, writing about football. Here are five points. One, they start talking about how great Mark Sanchez is. That's not what I'm getting to. They're talking about quarterbacks uh, that could be useful, maybe quarterbacks who are backups now. No one roots for injuries, but Bill Belichick might be pulling for some quarterbacks to go down. Listen, if there's anyone in the world who roots for injuries, it is Bill (laughs) Belichick, right? So, of course, Bill Belichick is rooting for some quarterback to go down, and then they'll trade Ryan Mallett, and they they get back some uh, great other quarterbacks. But this one column is all I need. This is what I need. This is a column by Will Brinson. Don't need anything else about the preseason. That's it. Maybe that's what That's it. Give me a column. Will Brinson. So, Football Outsiders did, um, Stephanie, you sent us around... um, there is actually a correlation between how teams do in the first half of preseason games, at least when starters are playing, and how they do 
in the regular season and that you should be concerned, for example, if your team gets blown out and that it's irrational to just say that preseason games have no predictive value. Small sample size. And there was another study a couple of years ago that similarly found a very small correlation uh, between the preseason and the regular season between 2002 and 2010. A couple of academics looked at this. But what they found that was interesting is that preseason did have much more predictive value up until about 1994. So in the 70s, 80s, there was actually a correlation between performance in the preseason and performance in the regular season. Um, And they also looked at, I think, the third preseason game because that's the one that the starters routinely play into the second half. Was that before players figured out that they shouldn't try? That was before (laughs) there was a collective. That was before the strike and the subsequent collective bargaining agreement that created free agency and the escalation in salaries. So you don't want to get your players hurt. It was also... You know, before, at least in the 70s and, and into the 80s, it was before players came to training camp already trained so that there was a greater utility to playing in these games. I take you back to 2008, August 7th. Dun, 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 they won 13 to 10. Dun, 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 August 17th, they won 27 to 10. August 23rd. They won 26 to 6. That was the most important third game. And August 28th, they won 14 to 6. Those were the 2008 Detroit Lions that lost every game in the regular season. <laughs> That's a small sample size. That's a very small sample size. But one I love. Well, the whole football season is a small sample size. <laughs> we're all small sample size. Our time on Earth. Glaciers look at us. <laughs> glaciers look at our species and say small sample size. <laughs> uh, so I guess the final question is you say, Mike, that this is the market. How can we criticize anyone or anything for responding to the market? But I think that you could say that there are costs – to the NFL for pushing out this preseason product. Maybe I'm wrong, but there's cost in terms of pissing off the players, you know, especially with Goodell wanting to add extra games to the season. There are costs, I think, to pissing off the fans. Which has not gone through, and we'll see whether it does. You think it's just a bargaining chip that's not actually going to happen? It's like a thing where you say we want 18 games, but what you actually want, it's like when Scorsese put the exploding head into casino, knowing that the MPA would take it out so he could keep all the other violence and gore. Good point. Good analogy, Stefan. Um, <laughs> you're games, really nailing it. You're on your game today, Stefan. <laughs> but there are costs to the fans. The fans, I, I think, just because something does better ratings than like whatever would be like, you know, the infomercial for Botox that would have been on instead of the preseason game that's on CBS, just because it does better than that doesn't necessarily mean that the market is roaring its approval at how the NFL treats preseason. But but does the market need to roar its approval or is the market going to consume anything that you put on that has the letters NFL in it and the NFL doesn't really care? It doesn't, as long as it doesn't damage the real product, then what from the NFL's perspective is the downside and why would you want to eliminate it? It generates revenue. People watch it on television. It primes the pump for the regular season. What from the NFL, from the league's perspective is bad about it? I guess nothing. Uh, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll sorry tell you what it does. We, sorry that we talked about this. It gives rise to articles like this. H2408, extra, extra, the Detroit Lions are 3-0 and in the preseason. <laughs> the fact of the matter is the Lions haven't opened the preseason with three consecutive victories since 1995. They made the playoffs that season after going 10-6. and We're not suggesting the Lions' sharp preseason means they'll earn a postseason berth in 2008, but it's nevertheless added to the growing optimism around their chances this season. 
So it's fantasy football. It's false hope. That's the product we're selling. But sports NFL, is false hope. False, that no. is great. It's great that the Lions went three. You know, those Lions fans were into the team heading into the regular season until about what week five. All right, we've yeah. spent we've we've spent enough time on this on the uh, two thousand eight Lions. And I got to I got to wear a uniform in preseason. Uh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. did. Yeah, you know. the preseason. <laughs> It's good for Stefan Fats' career. All right, a quick word about our membership program, Slate Plus. You can sign up for $5 a month at slate.com slash hangout plus. You can hear bonus segments on this podcast and others in the Slate family of podcasts. You can get discounted tickets to our live shows and other Slate live events. Also, I've got a story uh, that I edited this week that I'm really excited about. It's by a guy who makes a very convincing case in very uh, high-quality prose that he was the worst quarterback in the history of high school football it's very funny it's very smart um and we're going to do an interview me and uh and this fellow um then we'll make it a slate plus bonus extra he does but i don't want to release his name now because then maybe like si will do a profile like Mm -hmm. in the next 12 hours where the piece comes out you got to think about these things wow that's us you are an editor you're a writer i'm an editor so slate.com slash hang up plus to get all these goodies that's going to be an audio bonus segment it'll come in your slate plus audio feed if you are a Slate Plus member. All right, on to baseball. And for the last uh, couple of seasons, the Tigers' Miguel Cabrera has won the American League MVP award. And for those last uh, two seasons, sabermetrically inclined individuals, and I'd put the three of us in that category, have argued that the Angels' Mike Trout should have been the AL MVP instead. So one of the Troutistas' top arguments has been that the young outfielder has led the majors in war. And that is wins above replacement, which is a stat that is designed to determine how much better you are than a replacement level player, which is a player that can be signed off the street. So more broadly, war is kind of a catch-all statistic. It counts up a player's total contribution. Um, For a position player, that means you're hitting, your defense, and your base running. So it does, you know, OPS is... You just your your hitting and your um, all the advanced fielding statistics. That's just your fielding. This is everything in one number. Um, and since Mike Trout does everything that one can do as a baseball player well, WAR captures the full measure of his greatness. But if you look at the leaderboard on the website Fangraphs last week, Trout was not at the top of the WAR list for position players. It was the Royals' Alex Gordon. Gordon's batting average. His on-base, his slugging percentage, his home runs, RBIs, runs scored, his stolen base toters are all below Trout's. In many cases, very, very far below Trout's. The difference is that Gordon's defense is rated near the very top in the American League, near the top of all of baseball. While Trout's, at least this year, according to the Fangraphs uh, measure, is considered subpar. So you'll notice that I said Gordon was ahead of Trout last week. As of Monday morning, He has inched ahead of Gordon, 5.8 war compared to 5.7. So damn you, Mike Trout, and your Sunday night home run, making this subject slightly less topical. But last week, Yahoo's Jeff Passan started a bit of a kerfuffle when he wrote on the Fangraphs War Standings. Love Alex Gordon as a player, legitimate star. Legit. 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 The idea that he's the best player in baseball this year is absurd. Elite. Yes. Um, so, Mike, Pesca. Somehow, this idea, this idea that somehow he is the best player is, in a word, absurd. This is going to be the monologue on John Oliver's show coming up. It's going to be on The Daily Show. So, before the it gist. hits. It's going to be on The Gist. Before it hits any of those, any of the mainstream, lamestream right. media, Mike, walk us through this war on war. 
do come with me as we go and take a look at war. There's a holy grail, a search for a stat, the stat that unites them all. And so we thought it might be war, but it can't be war because war is based on non-empirical judgment calls. The composition, it's based on two non-empirical judgment calls. The composition of war, most of the hitting stuff is empirical. The defensive stuff, we'll get to that in a second, but what the formula is, what the recipe is with all this empirical stuff, that's open for debate. And different sites have actually different calculations of war. I think baseball reference and fan graphs calculate war differently. Right. It's a concept of wins above replacement. It's not actually a single statistic. Right. It's not a statistic. This, the component substatistics offensively, as I'm saying, are empirical. Now, defensively, it's not that they're not empirical. It's just that everyone would agree the defensive statistics need to be taken with, if we're going to talk about recipes, a grain of paprika. Because they are getting there. They're getting a little better. But they use things like zone rating, which is, uh, you know, someone judges if a ball can be gotten to. There's a bit of subjectivity there. One of the great things about baseball is there are so many chances. You know, someone goes to bat 600. So let's see, Mike Trout this year has 571 plate appearances, right? And in those 571 plate appearances, he probably sees, I don't know, an average of five or six pitches in that bat. So he really has 2,000 to 3,000 chances to show you something offensively. Even, you know, taking a pitch shows you a little something, right? But in baseball, how many chances does a fielder get? Like, you know, a shortstop will get, you know, nine a game or something, and that's pretty good. So this is one of the reasons why defensive statistics, even though defense, the, it's not calculated as 50-50, but defensive statistics are so suspect that someone could have, you know, a hugely great defensive year and uh, pop in the war standings. And I'll also say this, if you look at, say, Mike Trout, is he a good defensive center fielder? Yeah, he's a really good defensive center fielder. He just is, just watch the guy, just watch the ball as he gets to, watch his arm, all that stuff. He's a really good defensive center fielder, but there are some some years, I mean, he's only played three or four years. There are some years where there, there shows such great fluctuation in his center fielding, and a lot of players have this, where it's just not logical, you know? it's you, Players don't go from being slightly below average to that above average to slightly below average in the outfield. It, it's not su- subject to slumps like that. So I think this is a big, uh, big criticism of war. So I think with every statistic, and again, war is more of like a conceptual framework, for how to look at a baseball player rather than a single stat, a single number. But I think with with any stat, there's a period in which you kind of learn how to use it and how it can be abused. So we've gone through this with a bunch of numbers in baseball. There was a period when RBIs were considered the kind of number one measure of how good a player was, how well you drove in your teammates. But then... And that wasn't even in the dark ages of baseball. That was like almost the next generation. (laughs) Whenever Juan Gonzalez played. Um, (laughs) But then it's like, oh, well, you have obviously huge numbers of differences of opportunities between players. Like if Juan Gonzalez has guys in front of him who are getting on base and one of his rivals does not, that's going to hugely skew the RBI numbers. But with War, I feel like it was kind of elevated a little bit before its time, in part because it was such a handy way to make the argument that Mike Trout was better than Miguel Cabrera. And war is also just interesting because it purports to evaluate and does evaluate every way a a player can contribute, which is sort of a pre-statistical idea in baseball, that we want somebody to be a great all-around player, that we want somebody to have the five tools and this is kind of a way to combine like every – it's not just combining 
every possible statistical measure. It's like every possible way to evaluate a player. It's like subjective and objective altogether. And yet it's it just seems like it's not fully baked at this point. Well, right. And Dave Cameron doesn't argue that it's fully baked. He makes the opposite argument that that there is a case to be made that defensive fluctuations based on the statistics we have now are so great that it's not really an honest measurement, but it's good enough that if you bake it in to a larger metric, it'll give you a picture of a player's ability. And he even says, fine, you think that Alex Gordon's overrated numerically defensively? Knock out a bunch of numbers from that, and he's still a top 10 player in baseball. So the idea behind war isn't so much to give us a definitive list of who the best players are, and this is probably the large argument about statistics, is that that they are not meant to grade from 1 to 800 in terms of ability. They are to give you a general perception of how a player is performing and where he ranks relative to his peers. And Cameron says that specifically, you know, who's the very best? War can't tell you that. But the good news is that it's not trying to. It's only trying to tell us that Alex Gordon's really good and he's having a really good season. And these numbers, when you put them together, demonstrate that. I think that I'm not going to make this a straw man argument because I'll put it on myself as well. But I think that people who are sabermetrically inclined often do not make the allowance that Cameron did in that piece, that statistics are not Definitive. I think that often, just as it is with people who think statistics are bunk, no matter what the statistics are, it's based on creating an argument that gets the outcome that you want. So when people wanted to argue that Mike Trout was so great and was better than Cabrera, I think war was described by sabermetrically inclined writers and maybe by people like me as being this number that proved that Trout was better than Cabrera. And now when the outcome is a little weirder or a little bit more non-standard, now we're hearing more of the argument that war is just like, you know, a way to categorize people and you can't look at the leaderboard and say that somebody's number one and number two. Does that does that seem fair to you, Mike? Well, I think when it was done with Trout, there were people who wanted to and I, I agreed with this, claim that Trout creates more runs in ways that weren't being picked up by the triple crown categories. And so rather than go through every single statistic and do the thing where you say, now you have to also realize that if the guys behind them aren't batting, you can't just compare Trout's runs and Cabrera's RBIs, and then you add the steals into it. To, like way too complicated. And that's why war is created. It's one stat. So the audience for the argument that Trout was better is the kind of audience who believes in triple crown categories. So to counteract that argument, you say, look, there's one statistic that was created to capture overall value, and Mike Trout leads in it. And why sully your point by saying, now here are the six caveats, including defense, about that, (laughs) right? I think if you want to do the comparison, you put defensive statistics in a little category and you say there's a debate about how much defensive statistics, how they compare to offensive statistics anyway. Okay, fine. But then you have pretty good measures like OPS plus and what is it? WR plus wins, wins replacement thing plus. And Trout's, Trout's the best in that. You know, Trout's has a WRC plus of 164 and uh, Gordon is 126. In fact, Gordon is not even in the top 30, which means he is a great player, but, you know, offensively nowhere near as good as Trout and some others, like Stanton in the National League. 
I do want to say, though, the idea of, you know, all statistics and tell us is these two guys are top 10 players. That is unsatisfactory. The whole reason we started having the war conversation to the mass audience was to not say that Cabrera and Trout are two great players or two top 10 players. It's to define who is the better player. So your statistics have to at least do a good enough job at that to decide, is this player better than that guy, rather than say, hey, they're both top 10 players. It's not a fault in the statistics as it is a fault in how people want to use and interpret the statistics, though, is it? Well, I don't... I, I think that what I was saying is it's inadequate to say what this... All the statistics can tell us is that he's a top 10 player. I think that's not all the statistics can tell us, and I think it's a cop-out to say that let's just agree that he's a, these two guys are top 10 players. We need to know who's better. Someone's <laughs> going to get a car based on this. There is kind of an opacity here, and I don't think that it's... Um, I have a being, capacity for opacity. It's not being overly nostalgic to say that this isn't something that we can calculate and it's a bit of a black box and that you're kind of trusting the people who created it and thinking that they're smart and that they know what they're doing. But then you have the fact that the baseball reference war and the fan graphs war are so different and then there are some defensive statistics. It's not just that the N is really small and Alex Gordon only has a certain amount of chances. It's that in different defensive systems like Ben Zobrist in 2011, like his war was like super duper duper high. I love Ben. But in one of the defensive systems, he was considered one of the worst fielders at his position. In another one, he, he was considered one positions. of the best. I mean, come on. Yeah, they couldn't. Maybe they thought he was in right field. So obviously, that's why he wasn't fielding that ball at third base. <laughs> he couldn't get to it. Yeah. But the defensive statistics are just, there's such a need for them because the traditional statistics are even worse than things like RBIs, like errors are completely subjective. Fielding right. percentage doesn't account for your range. So they're so necessary, but the the data at this point are so you know dispersed and they're proprietary in certain ways. And so we need it, but it's just not ready yet. And so when it gets included in this, in this system, then it combines with the fact that we're just generally skeptical of defense in all sports. Like, we don't consider the fact, and we'll talk about this in our next topic, when we talk about Kevin Love being great, just the first thing that pops to our mind isn't his poor interior defense. We think about his ability to shoot three-pointers, his ability to get off into rebounds. So the fact that Alex Gordon is at the top of this list of a baseball player because of his defense, we're automatically skeptical of that just because preventing something from happening is less intuitively interesting or compelling to us than actually doing something. And so that's why it kind of offends our sensibilities in this, in this way. And, and it's, I think, also becoming harder, or at least we're not there yet, in terms of understanding how changes in strategy in baseball are affecting these metrics, how shifts are affecting these metrics, you know, and how understanding the way that defensive chances are created are affecting these metrics, positioning on the field, where a pitch is thrown, you know, the ability of, of, of a catcher to frame better, to help a pitcher become better and, and help him with his location. I mean, all, all these things you know, go together in determining whether players get chances to field the ball. And I don't know whether it was Cameron or Sam Miller on Effectively Wild or Jeff Passan, but they were, they were talking about the, the flaws here. On the one hand, there's little year-to-year correlation in how players perform defensively. On the other hand, we're making great strides in understanding defense and making great strides in understanding other components of what make players good. Like Alex Gordon is really good as a base runner. And now we can quantify how he is good as a base runner. So part of this, I chalk up to just the evolution of 
of, of taking the data, of acquiring the data, first of all, understanding what data is important, acquiring it, and having people like Fangraphs and Baseball Reference find ways to throw it all together and spit out something that is sensible and comprehensible and does what you want, Mike, to tell us whether Mike Trout is better than Alex Gordon is better than Miguel Cabrera. Zobrist is a great base runner, too. And Trout's better than all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but the fi- just wrapping up, the thing that really fascinates me about the defensive stuff is that I think we'd all agree that defense is incredibly important. And we'd also agree, and Cameron and Fangraphs did a great job of pointing this out, that if Gordon gets 300 chances, a bunch of them, the majority of them, are him just standing there. Yeah, just a pop fly that maybe even you could catch. Not me. I can't judge a fly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that validation. But there may be like 50 plays over the course of an entire year that are these kind of middle ground plays where, you know, maybe you'll catch them and maybe you won't. And that it's just really interesting to think about the fact that it saves a huge amount of runs if you make those plays. And a guy like Alex Gordon will make more of those than somebody who's bad. But is that how we should define greatness in a sport is how you do and this just very small number of chances that you happen to get Right. In the course of a year. And next year, he could just by happenstance get like half as many of those kind of edge case chances. And this is how this is basically how we define Alex Gordon's greatness, because so much of it is based on this defensive part of war is just the balls that happen to go into his area this year and whether, you know, one bounces an inch short of his glove and one doesn't. I just think it's a great advance that we're using the phrase Alex Gordon's greatness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, Clayton Kershaw and Felix Hernandez lead in war and various measures of it. So these guys are chumps compared to the best pitchers. All right, on to the NBA. And over the weekend, the trade that we all knew was going to happen, well, it happened. The Cavaliers get Kevin Love in exchange for number one pick Andrew Wiggins, former number one pick Anthony Bennett, and then a bunch of other stuff got shipped around various NBA cities, including the usual 76ers-related flotsam and jetsam. Uh, But we are here to talk about Love and whether Love will find a way or his labors will be lost. But first, if you'll indulge me, I'll bring in uh, Mike Pesca here. This is an area of his expertise. I'm going to come up with a quick top three list of the love-related headline puns that you're unlikely to see in the Cleveland Plain Dealer this year. And if we do see them, you'll know something fantastic and amazingly weird has happened. For number three, I'm going to go with, when poverty comes in at the door, love flies out the window. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, number two. That's when they're going to trade Kevin Love for Jamel Poverty. (laughs) I haven't heard of him. Uh, Number two, lucky at cards, unlucky in love. Uh Uh-huh. Number one, Lord, love a duck. What, what, what? If he gets traded to the Anaheim Ducks. Oh. <laughs> and, then he, and then he won't be on the team, so they'll be making love out of nothing at all. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but where were we? The Cavs trade for Kevin Love, I believe. He averaged 26 points and 12 and a half rebounds last year. He's a three-time All-Star. He's also never made the playoffs or really played in a big game since he's been in the NBA. So how do we know how good he really is? How do we know how he'll fit in with LeBron in Cleveland. Here to help us answer those questions is Kevin Pelton. He is a smart guy. He writes about basketball for ESPN.com. Hey, Kevin, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, sure. We always love to have you. Love. Love, 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 love. And a piece for Grantland, uh, Kevin, 
your corporate sibling, Mr. Bill Simmons, laid out, for the sake of argument, the case against love. And I will lay out that argument now as well. He cannot play defense. He tries to pad his stats at the expense of winning. His Timberwolves teams never made the playoffs. Simmons doesn't really buy this case. I don't really buy it either. But we have you here to refute it. How do we know how good this guy really is? And how do you rebut those various charges against him that he's not as good as maybe the stats would indicate? I think that's kind of why we have advanced stats, to be able to separate a player from his team in a situation like this where it's so clear that you know a lot of the issue was the fact that they had the worst GM in the league perhaps over the last five years and blew a series of lottery picks and had so little around uh, love in that period. So, you know, one of the first important things is we can look at how the Timberwolves performed with love on the court as opposed to on the bench. And last year in particular, he had one of the biggest gaps between that level of performance of anyone in the league. Partially that was because of the way that Rick Adelman used his rotation, where he played all his starters together and then basically took them all out as a group and brought in his reserves instead of mixing some of those two groups together, which might have helped out the reserves. But basically what that meant is the Minnesota starting lineup was really good. They outscored opponents by nine points per hundred possessions last season and played the third most minutes together of any unit in the league. And it was just the fact... was the fact that the bench was so bad that dragged them into a bunch of close games, and then the Timberwolves were historically inept at trying to win close games. So I think one accurate criticism of Love is that he isn't very good at creating his own shot in the clutch, which would be a problem if he wasn't going to join LeBron James and Kyrie Irving, who both are very good at doing that. He's a great rebounder, but he's not great at defense. But rebounding is an important part of defense. So what does it mean that he's not great at defense? Yeah, and that's one of the things that I think has been dramatically overblown. And sometimes it seems like in this modern media society that it's almost like a game of telephone, where something that's fundamentally true gets overblown way out of proportion by the time everyone has finished saying it. So he's not a very good individual defender. And one of the big problems that he has is he's not good defending at the rim. Last season, uh, they started sport view tracking in every arena, and people were able to see on NBA.com that Love had one of the highest field goal percentages against him by opposing players when they were close to the basket. But that kind of only tells half the story, because the other half of it is that what he does is he almost never fouls anyone, and the Timberwolves had the lowest rate of sending opponents to the free throw line in the league. So it's still not a good trade-off. You would rather he be a good uh, rim defender, contest more of those shots, and maybe occasionally get into foul trouble, but it's not quite as bad as it looks. And overall, adjusted plus-minus data, for example, ESPN's real plus-minus, shows that he's actually a slightly above average defender at power forward when you combine all of his skills, especially the rebounding. With other strong inside presence, is that inability to defend the rim, is that something that the Cavs will be able to uh, kind of camouflage, camouflage? It's definitely possible, and part of the issue in Minnesota was he was playing next to a center, Nikola Pekovic, who also is not very good at protecting the rim and you know, excels at other parts of the defensive game. So, you know, Anderson Varejao is a little bit better in that regard. It's clearly Cleveland's biggest weakness. The most interesting thing is whether the Cavaliers will be able to go small at all and put Love at center, LeBron at power forward, maybe now Sean Marion at small forward next to him. You don't have a lot of shot blocking in that lineup, but it would be devastating offensively, and it's actually similar to what we saw the, the last time that Love did play in a big game since his UCLA career, which is the 2012 London Olympics. 
how, Kevin, can we project how well that Love and James and Irving can mesh offensively? And what changes to LeBron's game? What, uh, what adaptations does he need to make to maximize having Kevin Love versus the guys he had in Miami? I think with Love in particular, it's going to be a pretty seamless fit because he is kind of a super offensive version of Chris Bosh. You know, Bosch is much better defensively, which is part of why the Heat were able to get away with playing him at center as much as they did. But offensively, Love has been a better, more prolific three-point shooter, and he's been a more dangerous inside threat as well, much better at getting to the free throw line. He's kind of been able to balance those two skills, whereas Bosch has gone very much all to the perimeter the last couple of years. Uh, the uh, dismay of critics who would want to see centers playing in the post. but So it's, it's kind of similar in that regard where Love has that ability to play inside or out depending on what the Cavaliers need from him. I think the bigger adjustment is actually going to be LeBron and Kyrie Irving because of the fact that Irving is more like Dwayne Wade in that he's had the ball in his hands almost all of his career. He's a better outside shooter, which gives that the potential pairing more chance of working. But uh, the biggest adjustment for LeBron, I think, is going to be the fact that he's likely to play on the perimeter much more than he did in Miami, which may partly explain why he's apparently dropped so much weight over the offseason. Well, we're just coming out of this uh, segment, Kevin, where he talked about evaluating offense versus defense in baseball and how it's so much easier given this state that we're in, in terms of analytics, to determine the offensive side. And it seems like it's, it doesn't seem. It definitely is the case in basketball as well. You wrote in your projection about the Cavs that they could have the best offense or one of the best offenses in the modern history of the NBA. And there's ample data to support this based on you know looking at Love, looking at James, looking at Irving, and how they do in terms of efficiency and scoring. But in terms of defense... It struck me that in your projection of the Cavs and in Nate Silver's projection, it's basically throwing your hands up in the air and saying, they'll be good if Kyrie Irving decides he wants to try on defense. Um, they'll be good maybe if these guys can mesh as a team. And it, it actually doesn't seem wrong to just kind of throw your hands up in the air. It depends on the coach, David Blatt, and what system that he's able to put in. But how much of this is just wish casting and saying like, oh, well, if Kyrie Irving tries, they can be better, or if they can mask Kevin Love's weaknesses? Or is there actually like huge concern about the Cavs defense? And we're just saying, oh, maybe the coach will, you know, be able to figure something out. I think there's certainly legitimate concern about whether they can be a good enough defense. You know, it's it's been very hard historically over the last 30 years or so to win championships without having a top 10 defense, even if you have an offense as potent as the Cavaliers could be. Now, you know, some of that on the individual level just comes down to luck. You know, if the Phoenix Suns hadn't had Amari Stoudemire and Boris Diaw suspended in 2007 against San Antonio, maybe we'd be saying, well, they're the team that shows that, you know, if you have a good enough offense, it doesn't really matter how how good you are on defense, you still can win. But, you know, it just didn't happen like that. I think that in the NBA, part of the reason that defense is so much harder to assess is not necessarily just that we don't have is many numbers and you know the addition of sport view allows us to track a lot more and we can speak more confidently about guys rim defense than you know we could a couple years ago when we're just looking at their block rate but the other aspect of it is a effort is hugely important and b 
coaching is hugely important, and those factors tend to change how good guys are defensively all the time. You know, I, I covered the, the Sonics in the early 2000s when they had really bad defenses with Ray Allen and Richard Lewis as their wings, but those guys went off to Boston and Orlando, respectively, and played for Doc Rivers and Stan Van Gundy and suddenly emerged as part of the two best defenses in the league, and then that's the kind of thing that can happen. So I don't think we're going to see a transformation that dramatic just because of personnel and the deficiencies they do have in terms of protecting the rim, especially when Anderson Verjao is not healthy, which you have to expect is a lot of time are harder to cover up. But, you know, the most important single factor in their defense isn't going to be any one of these players. It's going to be David Blatt and the system that he's able to install, which, you know, is kind of a blank slate as he comes over from coaching in Europe to the NBA. Does that apply also to what you mentioned? I mean, you said that a lot of this has to do with effort. And, you know, effort is impossible to quantify. I mean, it's eye test and understanding the athlete and the relationship he has with his teammates and with his coaches. Right. And a lot of it is also results. Like we know that there's putting in effort because of the fact that we see the defense getting better as opposed to how much it's struggled now. But, uh, you know, it's not an uncommon problem for young players on bad teams to not be defensively motivated. Part of it is the stakes suddenly get a lot higher now, and, and that changes players' effort. We've also seen that uh, internationally. Uh, Irving's playing for USA Basketball this summer in the, the FIBA Basketball World Cup, and his defensive effort has been totally different. He's actually something of a pressure specialist for them coming off the bench, playing alongside James Harden, who is also trying defensively after we've seen him not do that during the NBA season. Now, what about the criticism that love pads the stats? Can you, is that a thing? Are there some players, there must, there's definitely the perception that some players do that. Have we ever done an investigation to see which players pad the stats? And if he's been doing that somehow on a losing team in Minnesota, seems like he can pad the stats in a huge blowout, but not at a team that's like around 500. Right. And, and that's the main place that people have looked is in terms of what percentage of a player's points, you know, come in uh, situations where, you know, their team is dramatically ahead or dramatically behind. And the Timberwolves did actually have a surprising number of blowouts last year. That's part of the reason that their point differential was so much better than their record is when everything clicked and the, the bench did play well. They... Then Love was like, that's it, guys, I'm padding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, the, the big thing, I think, with Love is rebounding is a scenario where players can pad their stats. There are some guys... And everyone, if you have a good rebounder, just the nature of defensive rebounding is they're going to grab some rebounds that other teammates otherwise would right. you know, if they weren't there. That's just kind of the way it works. Some guys do that more than others because of the fact that they don't box out and they just try and go grab rebounds. And if they don't get it, then someone on the other team will, as opposed to having one of their teammates uh, you know, take advantage of their box out. But if you look at Love's stats in terms of kind of a version of adjusted plus minus that just looks at rebounding, he's actually fairly typical in the relationship between his own rebounding and the team's rebounding. For a guy who grabs as many rebounds as he does, he's not a notable Patter in terms of rebounding is a handful of guys in the league are uh, J.J. Hickson being one of the best examples. Hickson, that patter, exactly. Yep. I think uh, Simmons and Kirk Goldsberry of Grantland to both pointed out that with the Cavs, Love is going to be called on to do even more rebounding than he did with the Wolves. So he averages 12 and a half. He could get up to you know Rodman-esque levels because he's not going to be somebody who they're going to want to be outside the three-point line as much as he was in Minnesota, because you don't have, like, Ricky Rubio, the worst shooter in NBA history on this Cavs team. You have Kyrie Irving, you have Waiters and 
uh, Mike Miller, maybe Ray Allen. It's going to be less, you know, of a good thing for the Cavs to have Kevin Love. They're going to want him inside on the block. They're going to want him to be offensive rebounding. When you're outside shooting like seven threes a game, you're not getting as many offensive boards as you possibly can. So we might even see Love be more of a, a glass eater than he has been. And he's gradually kind of done less offensive rebounding, which is something all players, as they age, tend to do. They, their best offensive rebounding comes earlier in their career, and they kind of slowly and gradually fade to the perimeter. It's been a little more extreme in his case. But, well, should we be you know, worried that he's fading to the perimeter at age 25? No, not, not at all, because you know, the other half of that, and, and it's kind of similar to what I mentioned with the, the at-rim stats, where you have to look at kind of both sides of the equation. And the other half of that is, you know, one of the most valuable things you can have on offense in the modern NBA is a big man who is able to drag his his defender to the perimeter because it means that guy isn't in the paint helping out on opponent on teammates when they drive. So having love out there able to shoot threes really opens things up for Kyrie Irving and LeBron. So Kevin, what if I am watching a Cavaliers game, should I look for to see how Love and James particularly have changed their games in order to help each other flourish? Well, I think it's basically how they're able to balance, you know, the that outside-inside combination that we've been talking about, about a lot during this. You know, is LeBron occasionally posting up smaller small forwards now that he's likely playing in that role against smaller defenders? Are LeBron and, and, and Love inverting at times and, you know, one's on the perimeter, one's on the block, and then that changes in the next possession or from play to play? And then the other thing is the two-man game involving those two guys, which has the potential to be really, really unstoppable because the big man defending Love can't seg away from him lest he give up an open three-pointer in the pick-and-pop. And that means, you know, a one-on-one scenario for LeBron that he's going to excel at. Kevin, uh, your projection had the Cavaliers winning 68 games, but then you kind of wrote an article around maybe why that was a little bit optimistic. You didn't believe it yourself. What do you think is a realistic number for this team? Eventually where I came to is about 62 wins, 60 to 62, somewhere in that range. So, you know, enough for them to almost certainly, I think, be the best team in the Eastern Conference and right there in the mix for the best record in the league uh, during the regular season. All right, Kevin Pelton writes about basketball for ESPN.com, and he loves Kevin Love, and we love him. Kevin Pelton, (laughs) thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, and I love, love puns. Can I just add one thing? Sure. This was, I thought, going to maybe be a contentious interview because love is a battlefield, but it turns out that (laughs) love will keep us together. I don't know how great Kevin's going to be. Maybe he'll be the greatest love of all because we want to know what love is, and we want him to show me. One day Cleveland fans will say to the Timberwolves, your love is lifting us higher, and then and only then will they know how deep is your love. And, of course, Anthony Bennett will be saying, maybe I was wrong to ever let you down, but I did what I did before love came to town. And finally, if I had to rank NBA big men, uh, Kevin Love, Shaquille O'Neal, and uh, Glenn Davis, I'd say uh, Love, Shaq, baby. I just, I just hope Anthony Bennett didn't leave his heart in Cleveland. Wait a minute, that's not a love pun! It's Tony Bennett pun! Oh, Jesus. We know what, we know what Mike was doing while we were talking. It's disrespectful <laughs> and hilarious. All right, Kevin, thank you. Thanks, guys. Although, I'm See you, Kevin. We've never worked in summer of love. Damn it! It is the summer of love. It is. Next time. It is now time for After Balls, and we've been talking a little bit about something that I like to call the opposite of hate. 
And there's another player in the NBA, a great player named Butterbean Bob Love. He's from Louisiana. He went to Southern, selected by the Cincinnati Royals. He also played for the Trenton Colonials of the EPBL. You perhaps know him best as the best player in Chicago Bulls history before Michael Jordan came to town. But before Michael Jordan came to town, Love came to town, and he was good. Mike Pesco, what is your Butterbean? So a couple years ago, I had a pilot show that never really went anywhere on NPR, and I was trying to, you know, re- reinvent what it could be to have an interesting sports show. So this is just an idea to throw some things against the wall, see what stuck. I don't know if this stuck, but I got a comedy troupe in, and we recorded some uh, comedic sports sketches. Yeah, it doesn't really sound that good, but maybe when you'll hear it, you'll think it's uh, hilarious. So maybe... That would go something like this. You know, one of the great things about these awards is we get a chance to bring athletes from different eras and different sports together. Oh, look now. It's former Mets outfielder Mookie Wilson and current Giants outfielder Melky Cabrera. Oh, and there's winner of the 2000 Heisman Trophy, Chris Wenke. Uh, You guys haven't met? Well, all right. Uh, Mookie, Melky, Melky, Mookie, Wenke, Melky, Melky, Wenke, Wenke, Mookie, Mookie, Wenke. All right. Oh, look now. There's Cy Young winner Zach Greinke. You guys haven't met him either? All right. Granky, Mookie. Mookie, Granky. Granky, Melky. Melky, Granky. Wanky, Granky. Granky, Wanky. All right. Oh, God. It's former Braves second baseman Mark Lemke. Mark Lemke's here, huh? And you guys don't know each other? Really? Never, never met. Okay. Well, Granky, Lemke. Lemke, Granky. Lemke, Mookie. Mookie, Lemke. Lemke, Melky. Melky, Lemke. Wanky, Lemke. Lemke, Wanky. And speaking of second baseman, it's two-time gold glove winner and yet still relatively obscure player when you think about it, Pokey Reese. So, wait, you guys haven't met? You, you've never met at a barbecue or anything? Okay. Well, Pokey, Lemke, Lemke, Pokey, Granky, Pokey, Pokey, Granky, Pokey, Mookie, Mookie, Pokey, Pokey, Melky, Melky, Pokey, Winky, Pokey, Pokey, Winky. And oh, this is unbelievable. Former L.A. Raider wideout Doki Williams. I mean... How did you get even invited to the red carpet? You weren't that good. Oh, and I guess you guys have never met either, huh? Well, okay, here we go. I'm ready. Here we go. Okay, here we go. Pokey Doki, Doki Pokey, Doki Lemke, Lemke Doki, Greggy Doki, Doki Granky, Doki Mookie, Mookie Doki, Doki Melky, Melky Doki, and now, oh, look, it's Austin Rivers. Austin Rivers. How refreshing. He played a single season for Mike Krzyzewski, now entering the NBA, uh, which makes him, oh, Lord, a dookie rookie. Dookie rookie dookie. Dookie dookie rookie. Pokey dookie rookie. Dookie rookie pokey. Dookie rookie lemke. Lemke dookie rookie. Granky dookie rookie. Dookie rookie granky. Dookie rookie mookie. Mookie dookie rookie. Dookie rookie milky. Milky dookie rookie. Uh, uh, my, oh, my, oh, my heart. I'm here now, too. Skimpy Plackly Mickly. Skimpy Yeah, I want to meet these guys. Introduce me. Skimpy Plackly Milky Dookie Rookie. Dookie Mookie Rookie Dookie. Oh, here comes my sister. Shimply Plackly Mackly. Shimply Plackly Mackly Dookie Rookie. She wants to meet them, too. Shooky Dookie Milky Rookie Dookie. Shooky Dookie Mookie Rookie Granky. Now here's my dog, Spot. Spot. Psych. His name is 
Blanky Plankle Plankle. Uh, Blankly, but well, I don't need to introduce your dog, do I? Yes. Please. He's heading up ESPN now. Whoa! <laughs> That's great news. Splinkly Milky Dookie Pokey Milky Dookie Rookie Snookie Spooky Milky Dookie Rookie Dookie Dookie Smoky Dookie Rookie Dookie Spooky Dookie. He got distracted. You have to do it again. Uh, 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 Spooky Dookie. Can you come over and clean my house? Yeah. I got this outfit for you. You wear it. All right. A little bit of inside scoop here for the podcast listeners. As we're recording this, Mike has not yet decided which sketch he wants to put in there. And I have not listened to it yet. So I cannot comment on whether it was funny or not. But let me just say this, which I can't we comment on. We give two on. versions? Mike, Mike, that was definitely a comedy sketch. <laughs> All right. Great job. Great job it. accurately identifying the clip that you played. Stefan, what is your butterbean? The Swiss soccer team FC Visp celebrated its 100th anniversary over the weekend. It was quite a party. The band Chicken Wings performed. Google Translate notes that there was a party mile with various meals and drinks offers. There was also a photo op with the World Cup trophy and former Brazilian great Ronaldo playing in a celebrity exhibition match. So what are the World Cup trophy and Ronaldo doing at the centenary of a team that plays in the sixth tier of Swiss soccer? Well, FC Visp isn't just any provincial soccer team. It is the hometown team of none other than FIFA president Sepp Blatter. So FIFA naturlich used the occasion to celebrate our favored beblazered sportocrat, not only at the Visp events, but in a three-page spread in FIFA's party organ, the FIFA Weekly. This article does not disappoint. Our fearless correspondent, a fellow Sepp, Sepp Rengli, begins with a description of the Swiss canton of Valais. It is home to the Matterhorn, the most beautiful girls in the country, according to Rainer Maria Rilke and also FIFA president Joseph S. Blatter. Rilke really didn't say that, but I digress. Our profile reports that the region has produced everything from raclette to the namesake of the Ritz hotel chain. Quote, the only thing Valet has still to produce is a pope, unless you describe Bladder as a kind of football pope. Well, we do, of course. He's really more of a god. But modesty is in order here. FIFA Weekly takes us back to the very beginning, the birth of Bladder on 10 March 1936. A photo shows Seppli in the arms of his mother, Bertha. It was at FC Visp we learned that Sepp began one of the most spectacular careers in world football, rising from youth player to feared top-flight striker, who reportedly was nicknamed for a West German star of the time. I for goal, gushes the caption on a photo showing a doughy-faced bladder with his team. The Uwe Sealer of Upper Valet fired FC Visp to sporting glory. The goals and glory are not specified. Sepp was more than just a footballer, though. He was a keen athlete who also enjoyed a successful track career. At 20, he was the valet champ in the 100 meters, clocking in at 11.7 seconds. In the six seconds a goalkeeper used to have to handle the ball, Bladder would have reached the halfway line in his heyday. But Sepp wasn't just some dumb jock. No, he set a furious pace with his academics. He was a talented writer who financed his economic studies covering sports for a newspaper. He also worked in a hotel wine cellar. But, and I must say, given his athletic prowess, this comes as something of a shock, the strain of carrying wine crates was soon too much for his slight frame. 
Blatter then rose through various sportocrat bodies. He became general secretary of the Swiss Ice Hockey Federation. And here we learn that his father refused to let him play ice hockey because it was too rough. This deeply learned pacifism is why, once ensconced at FIFA, Sepp refused the, quote, coarse ice hockey term of sudden death for the more humane golden goal. Deep, deeply felt for Sepp Blatter. Blatter left hockey to work at the watchmaker Longines. Upon seeing that it was only athletes who seemed to be improving their times, Blatter resolved to bring better times to FIFA, too. Well, not for everyone, though. Blatter was the Machiavellian asshole in the next cubicle. He lived in the FIFA office in Zurich. The story recounts remarkably, quote, in order to offset expenses and to observe who arrived late to work. But how FIFA has soared since Dear Leader began snitching on the slackers. The smart valet native, a colonel in the Swiss Army, multilingual, eloquent, quick-witted, savvy, jovial, and by no means introverted, wink, wink, ladies of football, accomplished many feats that seemed impossible. Here's one. Although Blatter possesses a remarkable natural stamina on his feet in a similar way to the immovable Matterhorn, he was in favor of abolishing standing room in football for safety reasons. The immovable Matterhorn? The immovable Matterhorn, the immovable set. Also, FIFA has more members than the UN, billions of Swiss francs in reserve, but don't be blinded by the numbers. As Blatter's Boswell writes, sometimes numbers can lie. According to statisticians, a man with his head in a sauna and his feet in a fridge would have an average body temperature. I think that means that Sepp Blatter is the world's most exceptional man, but it's also how I'm going to imagine him from now on. Head in a sauna feet in a fridge. It's funny that you said dear leader because at the top of the afterball I was wondering who would win between him and Kim Jong-il in a golf uh, competition. Would they just tie with 18 holes in one? <laughs> That's exactly what would happen. You get 17 somehow. Josh. Like the, Matter- the Matterhorn would get 19. So. <laughs> well, Reclette would be up there too. Josh, what's your butter bean? Uh, women's basketball, like many other sports, has gotten more professionalized, more organized over the years, becoming one of the better options for young American women who want to make a name for themselves in sports. We're now in the middle of the WNBA playoffs. That league has been around since 97. Consider also 13-year-old Monet Davis, who made the cover of Sports Illustrated on account of her Little League exploits, but says her dream is to play for Gino Oriema, the coach of the NCAA's UConn Huskies. But before the WNBA, before the NCAA uh, added a women's basketball championship to its program in 1982, the best women's teams played in the AIAW tournament. Uh, That's the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. Several AIAW champions, Rutgers, Louisiana Tech, Old Dominion, continued on to become top NCAA teams. A couple of others, uh, the Immaculata Mighty Max and the Delta State Lady Statesman, Uh, which both won back-to-back-to-back titles in the 70s, now play in NCAA's Division III and Division II, respectively. But that is not obscure enough for this afterball. How dare you suggest that that was obscure enough, Stefan? (laughs) The lady statesman, not nearly obscure enough. We're going to go back still further to talk about a school that no longer exists. Before the AIAW, the highest level of women's basketball was played under the auspices of the Amateur Athletic Union. And the team that dominated AAU was Nashville Business College, which won eight straight titles from 62 to 1969. The Fightin' Ledgers? The Fightin' Ledgers. I actually don't know what their nickname is. Damn you for calling me out for my lack of afterball preparation. I'll endeavor. Go ahead. But, But what I do know is that back in the 1960s, women's basketball was literally a different game than it is today. 
I don't mean literally like some people mean literally. I mean literally. Women played six on six with two rovers who ran up and down the entire court, two guards who couldn't cross the midcourt line, and two forwards who could only play in the front court. And as the Tennessean newspaper explained in a feature about Nashville Business College and its dynasty, college basketball was not the same either. The women who played for the NBC AAU team did not have to be enrolled in school. The book Just for Fun, the story of AAU women's basketball by Robert W. Icard, explains that there were no roster limits. So this is like Nick Saban's fever, fever dream. In 1960, there were 18 women on the roster as opposed to your smaller rosters in the NCAA today. A lot of them also worked for the owner of the school, a fellow named Herman O. Balls, who also owned the Nashville Auto Diesel College. They played clubs like the Omaha Commercial Extension Comets, the Haynes Hosiery, and Lion Oil. Are you going to pipe in now, Mike? Have you successfully Googled the, uh, the team name? I'm looking for it, but yeah, I mean, once you got Haynes and the hosiery, I don't know what the business college could be. Still looking, still okay. never. There was no such thing as graduating from the National Nashville Business College team. The club's best player, Nira White, was an All-American for 15 straight years. <laughs> the coach, credit, credit a semester. <laughs> the coach of Nashville Business College, John Head, was the Gino Oriema of his day. He was able to recruit the best players from Tennessee and neighboring states to play for his basketball dynasty. He also coached the U.S. team to gold in 1953 at the first ever World Basketball Championship for women. The story in the Tennessean points out that there are nine inductees in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame from Nashville Business College, second only to the University of Tennessee's 10. And Nira White is the most legendary. She was considered the greatest player in the women's game. She could play inside and outside, shoot, rebound, dribble, score. According to Basketball, a biographical dictionary, she also played fast-pitch softball, making the all-world team in 1959 and 1965. She allegedly became the first woman to round the bases in 10 seconds flat. Uh, during her basketball career, she did indeed work at Herman O. Balls's Nashville Auto Diesel College. Uh, she's now eight, 78 years old. She's still living. She's in Macon County, Tennessee. She would perhaps be more famous if she did not get physically ill during interviews. Uh, the Tennessean reported that in 1992, she went to the Hall of Fame to get inducted. She felt physically ill. She decided she would never talk to a reporter again. Hopefully, she'll change her mind. She deserves the fame and people to know her name, Nira White. All right, Mike, are we out of time? It seems not to have a nickname. I think we're thinking of it like a college that would have it a wasn't. nickname. It's really a business. It and, was. And, and Nira, went, Nira went to Vanderbilt. That was her college, but she played for Nashville Business College. Right. The, they didn't have to be registered at the school. They just would right. play games. Right. That doesn't right. mean just that, like that doesn't mean it's exactly have a like nickname, the hosiery though. team. No, mean, the hosiery team didn't have a nickname. I see no nickname. Great snazzy uniforms, and uh, I also found out the interview thing. She also would have been a teacher, but she could not complete her student teaching due to extreme shyness. Wow. Yeah. Somebody should really bother this old woman and just really <laughs> force her to tell her story because it needs to be told. Uh, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and leave us a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty. Love him, cherish him, and thanks for listening.
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.